This week, face to face with a new dwarf planet, and it could be one of many. Sort of shows how little we know about our own solar system. There could even be, you know, large planets out in that area that we don't know about yet. And scientists should think about themselves more, says one expert who wants to put subjectivity back in physics. The superposition of the cat being dead and alive is as much about you as it is about the cat. Plus, how gastric band surgery actually works, and it's not by shrinking the size of your stomach. This is the Nature Podcast for March the twenty seventh, twenty fourteen. I'm Kerry Smith, and I'm Thea Cunningham. Once upon a time, far away in the outer solar system, there was a little dwarf planet called Sedna. Astronomers worried about poor little Sedna, for they thought she must be very lonely. The main planets in the solar system were much closer to the sun. She even lived further out than the Kuiper Belt in a region called the Inner Oort Cloud. Then one day, the earthly astronomers got a surprise. They saw that Sedna had a friend. The friend is too new even to have a name. So they call it 2012 VP113, which is catchy. The astronomers think the happy pair could have lots more friends if only they could see them with their telescopes, for they are very far away and very faint. But it's still a mystery how these dwarf planets got to the Oort cloud in the first place. Chad Trujillo and Scott Shepard found Sedna's companion. To see if Sedna and her friend lived happily ever after, I called Chad. So Sedna. Was found about a decade ago, and I was one of the co-discoverers. When we found it, we were very um, surprised because we don't know of anything else, you know, any large planet that's that far out. And usually, to put an object into an unusual orbit, uh, you need something out there in the neighborhood of, of the smaller objects. I've become quite attached to Sedna. Reading this paper, and now it's its little friend. I don't suppose you have a name for this thing yet, do you? Uh, no, we don't have a name. Uh, I guess we should start thinking of one. But uh, currently, the the name is 2012 VP113, and that's not a name we made up. That's a name that the Minor Planet Center uh, gave it. Maybe we should call it Chad in this conversation. Uh, well, you could call it uh, Chad and Scott, since my, my friend Scott Shepard helped me find it. Well, for the moment, tell me a little bit about how you found it and what it looks like. Well, we found it using, uh, there's a telescope uh, in Chile, and the way we found it is we just, it's pretty simple, we just take three pictures of the sky uh, with about an hour and a half to two hours in between each picture and make a, a time-lapse movie of the sky and look for something moving compared to the background stars, which aren't moving. And the way this oh. thing looks is pretty similar to, to Sedna? I mean, it's kind of an icy mass, I suppose. Well, we don't really know what it's made out of. So Sedna, people have taken uh, spectra of it, um, which is a way to measure what's on its surface. And we do know there are ices on Sedna, but um, VP113, unfortunately, is quite a bit fainter than, than Sedna. So all we have is its rough color, um, slightly reddish. But we assume because it's so far away from the sun, it must have a lot of ice on its surface. And why is it interesting then to have now found a second Sedna? Because when the first Sedna was found, people wondered if it was, you know, an oddity, like just some unique object that we don't understand. 
Um, you know, whenever you find something new, the question is, is it just some fluke that this thing appeared or could there be a lot more objects like it? And now that we found another object kind of in the same range as Sedna, we're pretty confident now that this is actually not, you know, Sedna is not unique. There's actually a whole bunch of objects, maybe more than the whole Kuiper belt. The reason there's only two known, though, is because they, they spend most of the time much further away than we can see them. Right, I see. So you can only see them on this closest approach that they have. But as you say, there could be tons of these. Um, there could be like a whole population of these little planetary shards. Yes, there could be hundreds of thousands, if not more, we don't really know. Wow. Back to what they might tell you about the solar system itself. I mean, how, how do you think these things got there? And, and what does that tell you about their interaction with other bodies? The most favorite idea is that uh, Sedna was actually, and, and VP113 were formed very early on in the solar system um, when the sun may have, have just been being born in its birth cluster. We know that stars are born in clusters with other stars. So what could have happened you know, very early on in the solar system is that uh, when the sun was still in its birth cluster, another star passed close by and might have uh, carried some material away from our star and sort of out into this uh, no man's land of the solar system. And that could be what we see today as Sedna and, and VP113 and, and the other inner Oort cloud objects that we think are probably out there. But there's other theories as well. It's possible that early on in the solar system there was more planets and they might have been thrown out by some large planet like Jupiter. And it's also possible that there could be a massive object still in the solar system and we just haven't seen it yet because it spends, it's currently very far away. The really interesting thing about Sedna and VP113 is it sort of shows how little we know about our own solar system. The fact that there's a whole population of objects out there, the fact that we don't even know how they're formed, and the possibility that there could even be, you know, large planets out in that area that we don't know about yet. That was Chad Trujillo with news of what could be a rather crowded outer solar system. On the Nature Podcast homepage, nature.com slash nature slash podcast, you can find a link to Chad's website with even more information on the new dwarf planet. And just for fun, why not tweet us with what you would call Sedna's friend? We are at Nature Podcast. Coming up, a pine tree genome wins the size prize and chickens that didn't cross the pond to South America. That's in the research highlights. But first, surgery can help obese people lose weight and keep the kilos off. Operations called vertical sleeve gastrectomies reduce the size of the stomach by three quarters, turning what was once a pouch into a narrow sleeve. Patients who get the surgery eat much less food, losing weight and reducing their risk of type 2 diabetes. But it turns out the effects of these surgeries aren't caused by simply shrinking the stomach. A team based at the University of Cincinnati performed the operation on mice and found that the surgery also changes the gut's biochemistry. Team leader Randy Seeley told Nature reporter Ewan Calloway how this insight might lead to gentler treatments for obesity. Ewan started by asking about the problems with gastric sleeve surgery. Well, it's a fantastic thing other than two pieces. Uh, one, uh, it's an invasive procedure, right? We're going to open you up, uh, remove a piece of your stomach uh, that's going to be gone forever. The second part is we don't have enough surgery tables, we don't have enough surgeons to be able to treat the entire population that's affected. 
And so a big part of what we've been interested in is trying to figure out why these procedures work so much better than anything else we have to give patients and find ways to make them more scalable. That is to figure out ways that we can mimic their effects without having to have a surgeon and a surgery table involved in the way, same way that we do today. These surgeries remove 80% of the, the stomach. Has the thinking been that that's why they work? Yes. No, I think the, the logic is that what we're doing is we're making a small pouch. And you know what? It doesn't feel good to continue to put calories into that small pouch. The problem has been that most surgeons and most people who study these procedures have taken on that mechanical perspective on how it is that we might make them better. And what we've focused on is the idea that it isn't really about the mechanical aspects of making the stomach smaller. It's about the signals. That is, how our gut talks to our brain, talks to our pancreas, and talks to our liver. And then what these surgeries are doing is changing that communication between our gut and these other organs. And one of the things that we noticed was that there were increases in plasma levels of bile acids in animals that had surgery. In fact, it turns out to be true in humans as well. So bile acids are the key. What are they doing here? So bile acids are made in your liver, and they're secreted into your intestine when you eat. And they're really important for you to be able to absorb food, particularly fatty foods. But it turns out that they're not just chemicals that help you break down fats. They are hormones in the sense that they can act on receptors at distal sites in the same way that classical hormones like insulin can. And so what we thought was that maybe these bile acids are acting as hormones and that the changing of the bile acids was part of this change of signals that come from the GI tract that alter our brain, our liver, and our pancreas. And now you narrowed it down, I, I understand, to, to one particular signaling pathway or, or one gene Explain how that works. Yeah, so the most likely target was this uh, nuclear receptor called FXR, which is a nuclear receptor that responds to bile acids and changes a variety of other genes as a result of what the bile acids are. And so what we did was to identify animals that had been genetically altered so that they didn't make FXR. And then we did bariatric surgery, in this case a vertical sleeve gastrectomy, in these mice uh, that lacked FXR. And I'll just note, it's a real technical tour de force to be able to take what is a procedure that's not easy to do in people and turn it into a procedure you can do in a mouse. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, do you have actual surgeons doing, doing this? Are they? Uh... We have a large team of people who have uh, trained to do these surgeries. One is a retired plastic surgeon. Uh, another is a veterinary surgeon. Another is a man with a PhD in physiology who learned to do detailed mouse surgery. So what happened after your, your mouse surgeons um, did these surgeries in mice lacking this, uh, this FXR gene that senses bile acid? So to our, both our happiness and our amazement, the animals that didn't have FXR failed to lose a significant weight didn't reduce their food intake, and their glucose levels didn't improve after the procedure. And so what I think that says is that making a small stomach is not sufficient. There's some necessity to have bile acid signaling as part of why it is that these procedures produce their beneficial effects. Does this mean that you could mimic the effects of the surgery without actually stitching up the stomach? 
We've actually done that and published a paper last year in which we did that. Divert bile acids that normally come in through a duct into the duodenum, and we diverted those bile acids physically, mechanically with a, with a catheter into the mid-jejunum. And the result of that was very similar to what you get out of a vertical sleeve gastrectomy. Animals lose weight, they lose body fat, they improve on a variety of different metabolic parameters. So you're right. The whole point of this is to say um, if we can manipulate the right uh, systems, whether that's at a mechanical level the way we did with the bile acids or on a molecular level by turning on or off the right pathways, we should be able to... um, produce the beneficial effects without a, uh, a stapler and a scalpel. This isn't just about drugs, too. A big part of what we did was to look at the bacteria that are in the gut and the changes that come after surgery. And that opens up possibilities that if the gut bacteria are important, that we can change those through nutritional changes. We don't necessarily have to think about this just in drugs, but it's what can we do to recommend dietary interventions that would produce some of the same kinds of benefits uh, via changing bile acids and changing uh, the gut bacteria that respond to those bile acids. That was Randy Seeley talking to Ewan. Now it's time for the research highlights read by Noah Baker. A conifer tree has won the prize for the largest genome ever sequenced. With 23 billion base pairs, it's more than seven times the length of the human genome. The loblolly pine is native to the southeastern United States. It's one of America's most commercially important tree species, harvested to produce timber and paper products. Researchers in the US sequence the genome of the loblolly using tissue from a single pine seed. Another team characterized around 50,000 of its genes. They estimated over 80% of the loblolly genome is made up from repetitive pieces. Other organisms may have bigger genomes, but they haven't been fully sequenced. Read more about it in the journal Genetics. DNA from ancient chickens dispels an idea that the bird first arrived in South America aboard a Polynesian ship. This theory was probably based on contaminated samples of ancient chicken DNA. Researchers in Australia sequenced DNA from a bunch of modern and ancient chickens. They found a unique DNA signature in chickens from Polynesia and Southeast Asia, but not in early South American chickens, suggesting that humans couldn't have transported chickens all the way there. Find that paper in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Shortly, Chief News Editor David Ray will be joining us for the news chat. But before that, quantum physics is a remarkably successful theory. Experiments have verified the predictions it makes to an incredible level of accuracy. But the world quantum mechanics describes is counterintuitive, to say the least. Physicists have long puzzled over a world where, for example, an object can exist in more than one place at once, until the point at which we observe it. Your household pet can be simultaneously both dead and alive until you open its box. For decades now, physicists and philosophers have tried to make sense of this strange universe. Can an object really ever be in two places at once? And why should just looking at the object cause it to choose? The latest attempt to settle this problem puts the measurer front and centre. It's a theory called quantum Bayesianism, or cubism. It says that quantum mechanics need not be such a puzzle – 
if we only realise that what we're talking about is our subjective experience. All our equations tell us is what we're likely to experience next. Reporter Lizzie Gibney caught up with David Merman, an emeritus professor of physics at Cornell University, who since retirement has become a cubism convert. He's written an essay for Nature about how putting our own internal perceptions back into science could resolve other persistent conundrums that go far beyond quantum mechanics. Here's David in conversation with Lizzie. From reading your piece in this week's magazine, you seem to think that we've lost our way somewhat in terms of the basic way in which, as scientists, as physicists, we interpret the world around us and experimental results. The scientists have excluded themselves from the science they do. The notion I'm trying to put across is that science is about the relation between the scientist and the external world. And for a long, long time, dating back, uh, I would say, to the ancient Greeks, the basic scientific maneuver has been to eliminate the scientist. And where has this failure got us into trouble then? Well, it did amazingly well for many, many centuries. The first sign that it was starting to get us into trouble was when quantum physics appeared on the scene. And at that point, various puzzles and paradoxes emerged. They were typically associated with something called measurement. And people got very confused as to what this process was. So that's like the idea of a photon or an electron being everywhere at once until we actually try to detect it. Yes, and then suddenly, poof, there it was. That is a very difficult idea for people to get their heads around. Is there an example you can give me of how uh, the situation becomes clarified if we put the subject, the person doing the experiment, back into the picture? I mean, there are things that are called quantum states, And what they enable you to do is calculate the likelihood of something happening. Now, the conventional way of looking at something happening is that something happens out there in the world. Something objective changes. The cubist way of looking at it says, no, what you're calculating is the likelihood of your having a particular experience. So if we talk about the famous thought experiment with Schrodinger's cat, there the idea is that we have some kind of radioactive decay um, that triggers uh, a poison that could kill or not kill a cat. And if we don't look at that system, um, according to how we describe it with quantum mechanics, that cat is, for a period of time, somehow both dead and alive. So the cubist theory would say, would say what exactly? The cubist theory would say, in, until you have a, an experience of the cat, you have no basis for saying the cat is dead or alive. Once you have an experience of the cat by looking at it, you then know that the cat is dead or alive. But it's, it's about the relation between you and the cat this funny uh, so-called cat state, this, this superposition of the cat being dead and alive is as much about you as it is about the cat. 
it's just a description of the probabilities according to you as an observer, rather than an actual state of the cat being yeah, both dead and, and, and alive. The probabilities are measures of what I can expect as an observer. The probabilities are not objective features of the world. They're not objective properties of the cat. If probabilities are subjective judgments, then quantum states are subjective judgments. And that drives physicists up the wall. They really don't like that. What advantages can this approach bring then to, to other areas of, of physics and to science if we start to put the personal experience back into the process? Well, that, that remains to be seen. In, in my article, I apply it to another old puzzle. I, I call it the, the problem of the now. The question is, in a, in a world where it was possible to move around at the speed of light and go great distances, if two people went away from each other and came back again, will our nows still coincide? Will we still be able to have a conversation? And physics, relativity physics, says yes. Now, relativity could be wrong, of course. but. What this shows is that conventional physics, once you acknowledge that personal experience is a suitable subject for physics, makes a prediction. So we are, to some extent, making an assumption, aren't we, that your oh. now is my now? Oh, absolutely. And we're comfortable with that? As comfortable as I am with anything. I, I, I can't believe that you're, you're a zombie, that you're off. 10 minutes in the future and that what I'm talking to is actually uh, a mindless automaton. Quantum mechanics we know is perhaps the most proven theory that's out there in terms of the calculations. Do you hope then to somehow take the philosophy side of it forward to try and show how this philosophical interpretation has implications beyond um, the untestable interpretations of quantum mechanics? My hope is that the cubist interpretation of quantum mechanics will put an end to the field of foundations of quantum mechanics, that future generations will say, there's no problem. We understand this subject. There is room in physical science for the, uh, the scientists. That was David Merman talking to Lizzie Gibney. Finally this week, Chief News Editor David Ray joins me for the news chat. David, the first story you have is about NASA and its missions. It is indeed, yeah. It's uh, the time of year where NASA's looking to um, figure out which of its missions it's going to extend and which ones it's going to divert its, most of its money into. And there's plenty of options on the table. And uh, sort of, we're not talking necessarily about the, the newer missions, which uh, are likely to receive sort of, uh, funding fairly easily, such as Curiosity. But this is the slightly older ones, the 10-year-old or plus uh, missions to Mars and the Moon and to Saturn, that uh, having to bid for limited funding now at NASA. And one of these in the running is the Mars rover Opportunity. It is indeed, yeah. Ten years down the line and 39 kilometres, I think it is, of, of Mars covered. Opportunity is obviously quite old technology now, so there's a big argument. And NASA this year is putting a big sort of emphasis on what science are we going to get out of these missions if we choose to extend them. So Opportunity now, the sort of technology is getting a bit older. It's done quite a lot, but the team there also claims it's got a lot more to offer. Uh, and I think as would the, the, the sort of teams looking at the Lunar um, Orbiter, for example, which has been out 
snapping the moon for since I think 2009, I think, and asteroid craters and this kind of thing. And also Cassini, which is uh, up in Saturn looking at its moons and uh, in the coming months, so its um, rings as well. And what will NASA be considering when they make their decision? Well, actually, they're putting in a slightly new um, function this year. So they want the teams to argue according to specific budget targets. So what is the bare minimum we can still expect to get and on what budget? What's the sort of uh, maximum we can get if you want to pump in lots of money? And what would be the sort of you know status quo, continue as, as you are plan? So they're kind of looking for three arguments and then presumably out of that will come a good idea for NASA of what science is best supported. And which mission is a front runner at the moment? Difficult to say, I think. I mean, obviously, Curiosity is going to get its, well, everyone sort of believes that it's going to get its funding extended because it's fairly new. Uh, but the other ones, that, yeah, as I said, difficult to tell at the moment. So the arguments go in uh, later in April and uh, and then it'll be before the end of the financial year in the US, which is September, when they'll make decisions on uh, on which ones are sort of best to extend and, and which not. But as for front runners, yeah, hard to say. Cassini's certainly definitely up there. And um, and the LRO as well. And what about the sort of losers? What will happen to those missions? Technically, they could be they could lose funding by the end of the year. This is when funding for most of these uh, uh, projects is up. So yeah, so there could be some some axes falling. Okay, uh, moving back down onto the ground to Italy. Yes, indeed. And and you say the ground. The ground uh, certainly shook when the Vesuvius went off in AD 79 and taking out both Herculaneum and Pompeii, two fairly large Roman cities. And I think ever since then, almost 2,000 years ago, both have been falling into a pretty bad parlous state of decay now, despite work that's gone on since the sort of 1960s to, to sort them out. Um, they're in a pretty bad state, and I think the Italians would be the first to admit that. And this was made worse at the beginning of uh, March when some walls collapsed due to pretty bad rainfall um, showers that they had in uh, in the Pompeii or Naples area at the beginning of the month. Uh, so this issue has come to light in how do we save Pompeii, and there's a number of different projects going on that we look at in this particular story about how to do that. And Pompeii is looking to Herculaneum for ideas. Yeah, it is. Herculaneum, since 2001, has had a very successful, arguably very good value project to repair it. I mean, it's a lot smaller than Pompeii. I think it's about one-seventh the sort of um, square footage, if you like. But it's a very good project at Herculaneum. It's delivered well. It's used some quite new, innovative techniques, which may not seem that amazing, but have really sort of conspired to produce some good results. And these include better working together of um, archaeologists, conservationists and and, uh, officials, as well as some slightly sort of more natty things, which, for example, they normally restore houses one by one. That's the common way that uh, things are done. But this project looks to sort of overall, let's restore all the roofs in Herculaneum because, you know, that will have better effects than just sort of tackling one by one houses. And what can we expect to see from the project? Well, this sort of mini project is um, in addition to a larger project, which the EU is, is set up with Italy when it's come up with um, more than 100 million euros that it's going to spend on what it calls the Great Pompeii project. And that in itself is a big conservation effort. A different team, and I'm trying to use uh, Herculaneum as an exemplar and, um, and do a, a project which basically copies their techniques, which involve uh, sort of more of an emphasis on routine maintenance, which, believe it or not, is, is, is often neglected and these sort of specific techniques of joining expertise together. So when are these plans going to be put into place? Well, the EU money has been uh, flowing since 2013. Uh, This is the 105 million euros I was talking about. That's got to be spent by 2015, so they need to do a lot of work by by the end of next year. And the smaller project, the one that is looking to Herculaneum to sort of copy, is called the Pompeii Sustainable Preservation Project. And this is sort of 
currently getting money together. It's got some philanthropic donations, uh, which they're hoping to get about 10 million US dollars worth. And that will be a 10-year study starting hopefully by the end of this year. Okay, well, in the meantime, we'll hope it doesn't pour with rain. Thanks, David. Remember, you can read those stories and more at nature.com slash news. That's all from us this week. Join us next time when we'll be looking back at the discovery of Homo habilis 50 years ago. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Thea Cunningham. 